Today we're in the middle uh, of our series through Christ, and we're looking at Luke 10. Luke 10, 25 through 37, if you want to open up there. And I want to acknowledge something at the, at the very beginning of this sermon, and that is that the Bible is not on my side. The Bible is not on my side. The Bible is not on your side either. The Bible is not on our side. And what I mean by that is I mean I don't fully understand it at times. And at times, it challenges me in ways that I do not like. At times, I'm re- there's parts of Scripture, I will admit, I know I shouldn't admit this as a pastor, but I will admit to you that I have read the Bible several times, and there are parts that I wish were not there. There are parts that I wish, you know, there are certain parts that just, oh, they just rub me the wrong way. They, are say, they say something, and it just bothers me deeply, disturbs me. And I want, I, I'm going to admit that to you, okay, because this is a passage that I think a lot of people feel like, yes, it's on our side. But the Bible's not on your side. The Bible's on God's side. And we shouldn't try to take the Bible and, and, and make it become like us. We have to look at it and try to become more like what we see here displayed in Scripture. And that's going to be very frustrating at times. So I'm just going to give you a warning today that, that the Bible's not on your side. It's not on my side. And I will freely admit there are passages I find very difficult. And I may one day preach on those passages um, because I think that's important to preach on the whole Bible. But uh, I'll wait till God tells me to. Today as we approach Scripture, we do so with humility. We do so with anticipation that God will speak to us. So we're going to walk through this this particular passage, this particular set of verses, and and what I want to do is I want to have somebody read it in its entirety. It's like 22 verses long, so don't volunteer unless you're in for the, the, you know, for the long haul. It's a commonly, you know, known passage. It's one that you've heard before, Um, but I want somebody to read it all the way through, and then we're going to kind of walk through it verse at a time. Okay, so is there a volunteer? You can either read it from the screen or you can read it from whatever version you have in front of you. As long as you feel like you can, you can do it for the full 22 verses. Is there a volunteer? Dave. All right, Dave's going to read for us. Thank you, Dave. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and stood and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. 
Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> Thank you for the long haul there, yeah. So now we're going to go through this verse by verse. Today I want to talk to you about your neighbor. I want to talk to you about your neighbor. Let's start with verse 25. Let's, let's look at this. Let's unpack this a little bit. Just then it says a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. The word for lawyer there is just, it just means an expert in the law. Somebody who is an expert in the law. So modern day lawyer or judge or something like that. Somebody who knows the law backwards and forwards. And he stood up to test Jesus. This expert in the law, this guy who he knows his stuff, he's not looking for clarification. He's looking for ammunition. He's not looking for Jesus to explain something to him. He's looking to test Jesus. He wants ammunition for his guns. Before Jesus even answers his question, the man has already decided in his mind that whatever Jesus comes out of, his, comes out of Jesus' mouth, he's not going to like it. He has tested, he's there to test Jesus. He's come so that he can justify his own rejection of Jesus. And he calls him teacher. And I think that's interesting. I think that the reason he calls him teacher is because his question, his testing question, is masked in honesty. He wants to have the appearance of honesty. He wants to have the appearance of asking a legitimate question. But in reality, his motivation is suspect. He's looking to probe Jesus. He's looking to test him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, here in verse 26, has no interest in engaging with him at all. Right? He says to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? You know, when I feel tested, when I feel like somebody's coming at me to probe me, my first reaction is a display of force. I don't know if you do the similar thing, but recently I was, I was actually, uh, we're talking about, a lot about Hispanic uh, stuff this morning, which is good. I, I'm in the process of learning Spanish again. Um, so I had to apply to Oregon Coast Community College in order to take Spanish classes down there. I think it's an important part of my spirituality and also my role as a pastor. But um, So I, I had to email them, and, and coming into, you know, they don't know me at all, so I got an email back from an advisor, and they said, oh, you know, we have to make sure that you fulfill the necessary prerequisites to take this course, so can you tell me, have you had any sort of college experience before? And, and so, you know, I emailed back, I'm attaching my CV. If you don't know your, what a CV is, a CV is sort of like a resume for snooty scholarly people. A CV is like, it, it like displays, it's on display for all the things that you've ever, you know, all the accomplishments, the academic accomplishments of your life is listed in your CV. And so I said, I'll, I'll attach my CV to, you, please feel free to peruse, you know, my master's degree and my postgraduate work at the University of Cambridge in England and my, my double bachelor's and my you know, academic papers that I presented at Oxford and blah, blah, blah. And um, I realized as I was writing this sermon, that's just a lot more about my vanity and my need to defend myself than it does about an honest evaluation of who I am as a person. When somebody probes me, when I feel somebody testing me, my first reaction is a display of force. Oh, you want to know? Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, let me tell you, you know. Oh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, well, I'll tell you what you need to do, you know. Why don't you sit down for a bit? Because it's going to take a while for me to explain to you everything that you need to do. Mr. Lawyer, Mr. You know, highfalutin expert in the law, let me explain to you what you must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus doesn't do that at all, right? He doesn't do that at all. 
Jesus doesn't allow somebody else's probing to touch his own insecurity. Jesus knows exactly who he is. Jesus doesn't have to respond to somebody testing him. Let me tell you something. People every day across the world come to Jesus trying to test and probe him, and Jesus doesn't care. Jesus isn't up there wringing his hands or saying, oh, I'm going to have to convince these people of something. So when this man asks him a testing question, what must I do in a hair life? Jesus just defers to him. Well, you're an expert in the law. Why don't you tell us? Please, I would appreciate you letting us know. And it's so against what my natural impulse is that it kind of, it bothers me a little bit, right? But it, I realize that the reason I respond with a show of force when somebody tests me is because I'm insecure about who I am. And Jesus is not insecure at all. He knows exactly who he is. That's something I'm working on. That's out there for you guys. And uh, in those rare moments of my life where when somebody probes me, I don't respond with a show of force. When I respond a bit more like Jesus, I realize something. The first thing I realize is that oftentimes people who are testing you have truth that they're trying to tell you, but they're not doing it in a very tactful way. And if you calm yourself down enough to actually listen to what they're trying to say, you might even learn something about yourself or about life that you wouldn't know otherwise. When somebody comes to you and they, they have a criticism or they have, they have something that's touching that insecure part in your life, and you start to feel yourself, you start to see the red kind of go down a little bit, you start to feel yourself getting aggravated, slow down a little bit. Be a bit more like Jesus here. I'm telling that to myself too. Be a bit more like Jesus here. Because when you do that, you start to realize that people sometimes have something important to give you. That you wouldn't receive it if you hadn't been open to it. So, sometimes I realize that. And then I also realize that when I become angry, when I get into my show of force mood, I act like somebody I don't want to be. You know? I act like somebody I don't want to be. I want to be a bit more like Jesus here. It's hard not to hit back when somebody comes at you or attacks you. It's hard not to hit back. And I wonder if Jesus felt the temptation to shut this guy down. Remember, temptation is different from sin. Sin is acting on temptation. Temptation is, there's options before you. There's options before you. You could do this or this or this or this. Right? And I wonder if Jesus felt a little bit of temptation to shut this guy down. Ultimately, he doesn't. Of course, he does not sin. Instead, he calmly just defers to him. What do you think? What do you read? What do you read in the law? So let's go to verse 27. The man answers, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Go to the next verse. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. I love how Jesus just totally affirms this man, right? You're right, he says. You're right. You, you got it. That's it. Do that and you'll live. Okay, thank you. Next person. Who's, you know, who else is here? Who else would ask, like to ask a question? Jesus affirms this man's answer. He doesn't see anything wrong with it. Right? Do that and you will live. Verse 29. But wanting to justify himself. Ah, now we get into it. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify him. Now we get to see a bit more of the motivation behind this man's desire. He wants to justify himself. How many people do I know, sometimes including myself, God forbid, who try to live their life justifying their behavior, justifying themselves? Just tell me what I need to do to make this right. 
to myself. All I'm trying to do is make myself turn out right. As a lawyer, as an expert in the law of Moses, this man surely had an idea of what a neighbor was. Right? What he wanted was he wanted Jesus to affirm what his assumption was about his neighbor. He wanted Jesus to affirm the idea, my, my neighbor is my fellow Jew, my neighbor is my, my friend, my neighbor is the person sitting next to me in my chair, my neighbor is the person who lives next door to me. It's almost as if this man is saying, Rabbi, tell me exactly, exactly who I'm supposed to love. I want to fulfill God's requirements. What exactly is required of me? I want to know who I have to love and who I can ignore. Tell me, who exactly is my neighbor? Define that for me. I want to fulfill all of God's requirements, but I don't want to do anything more than that. I'm interested in just fulfilling God's requirements for me. Brothers and sisters, there are many Christians today who are interested and who find fulfillment in a bare minimum spirituality. We'll come to church 51% of the time, right? We'll tithe straight 10% whenever God moves on their heart, you know? They will be, you know, there for their neighbor if they want to talk about Jesus. They say Merry Christmas at Christmas time. They say he is risen at Easter time, right? Give me the bare minimum of spirituality that I have to fulfill, and I will do that to a T. I will complete, I, I will own that minimum. Whatever minimum you set up, God, I'm going to own that. Tell me who exactly is my neighbor. I will go out and love that person. I will find that person. I will love them. We convince ourselves, and this man, this lawyer has convinced himself, that inheriting eternal life is all about what you must do on behalf of God. And we want to make sure everything's in order, right? Let's see, I, I messed up seven times this week, but I did eight good things. I'm good. I have met the bare minimum requirement set before me. We go to Jesus with all kinds of questions, trying to justify our behavior. Because deep down inside, and I suspect deep down inside this man's heart, he knew what the right answer was. So he throws up a bunch of questions because he doesn't want to admit it. I love questions. I love asking questions. I love answering questions. But there's a time when we need to stop hiding behind questions and just start obeying what God has called us to do. Right? Because sometimes questions are just a smokescreen because we don't want to get to the hard work that God has for us. So to answer this man, to give him, a, to give him an answer to his question of who is, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells a story. And we're going to walk through this story. It's a famous story, right? And so here we go, verse 30. Let's look at verse 30. Jesus replied. He tells him a story. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went on their way and leaving him half dead. Now, remember last week, we talked about hospitality. I talked about how in the first century, travel was very risky. So this is an example of that. This is not uncommon. Especially, I don't know why he was traveling alone. There's a man traveling alone from Jericho to Jerusalem. You're just asking to be robbed and beaten and left for dead. Right? He's by himself. People didn't travel by themselves. Uh, you didn't travel if you didn't have to. And it's risky. Risky business. All right? So uh, the man is left. He's naked. He's bleeding out on the side of the road. Gone are his clothing. Right? He's left without an identity. 
In the first century, in the, in the first world, if you see somebody walking down the street by their clothing, you could probably tell who that person is, who he belongs to, what sort of religion he follows, or uh, if he's a, a Roman, or if he's a Jew, or what kind of a person he is. And this person is left naked. He, he doesn't have any identifiable uh, articles of clothing on. Nobody knows who he is. He's lost his voice. Perhaps he's unconscious. Perhaps he's, he, he's left half dead. Right? He can't do anything for himself. He's helpless. Verse 31. Ah, but our man is in luck. Right? Good. Our man's in luck. There's a priest walking down the road. The same road. He happens to come to the same spot. Uh, Jesus is telling this story. And uh, he sees the man lying there. Oh, good. But when he saw him, Jesus says, when he saw him, the priest didn't stop. He didn't even wait. He immediately crossed to the other side. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this priest and who he was. And people say, oh, well, you know, maybe he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho because he just finished some priestly duties. Or maybe he's going someplace and he wants to remain ritually pure so he can't become a contact with a dead body. Or maybe... Um, uh, he is scared of other robbers coming out. Maybe this is a trap. He thinks it's a trap. And I like speculation. You know, like I said, I like questions. But guys, none of those questions are in this passage. None of those questions are answered by Jesus. We don't know what this man's motivation was. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know where he was coming from or where he was going. All we know is that he was a priest, someone who works in the temple, a righteous man, and he sees a beaten, dying man on the side of the road, and he decides to walk past him. That's all we know. But Jesus says, don't despair. There's another guy. There's a Levite. Right? A Levite's coming down. He's passing by the same road, coincidentally enough. And how nice for our victim. There's a Levite coming. A Levite, a righteous member of the community, upright, standing citizen. He'd be like a deacon in the church, somebody who assists the priest in his duties, and the Levite comes, and the Levite sees this man, and the Levite passes by on the other side. They both walk past him. Whatever the motivations of these two men were, the one excuse they could not claim was that they didn't see a man lying there. They see him, but they don't see a neighbor. They just see a man lying there. They decide to pass by on the other side. Every person has the same visual information. Isn't that interesting? Everybody in the story has the same visual information. Jesus says he sees, they see, he sees, he saw. They have the same information, but they are not processing it the same. To these two people, this man dying on the side of the road is just another person, somebody who they can ignore. Next verse but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. Oh, Jesus. Oh, boy. Not a, not a Samaritan. <laughs> you got to choose somebody else other than a Samaritan, Jesus. This is... Nowadays, by the way, this story has completely been ruined for you. And I'm going to try to redeem it. But we have, because of this story, we have Good Samaritan Hospital just down the street. We have Samaritan's Purse is an international aid organization. We have uh, Good Samaritans, right? We call them Good Samaritans. When somebody helps out somebody in need, we call them a Good Samaritan. In fact, we have laws. Did you know we have laws called Good Samaritan laws? 
which means that if you saw someone dying on the side of the road and you attempted to save that person's life and you ended up doing damage to that person because you didn't know how to save their life properly, they can't sue you because you were trying your best and it would be better to try something than to just let somebody die on the side of the road. So we have laws called Good Samaritan Laws and all of this has completely ruined the story for us. And when I redeem this story for you in a moment, when I redeem it, when I give it its original meaning, you are not going to like it at all. And you will not, no longer enjoy this story, and I apologize for that. But the Bible is not on your side, and it's not on my side. I'm going to try to give this story the original character that it had. Okay, are you ready? No, you are not ready. Say, buck, I'm, buckle up, say buckle up. Turn to the person next to you and say, buckle up. Let's do this thing. Let's get ready. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) So forget everything that you think you know about Samaritans. I'm going to try to tell you who they are. Three things separated Samaritans from Jews. The first one is they were not ethnically Jewish. What happened was, uh, do you guys remember our map? Long time ago, we talked about King David. And And this is like... Israel is up in here, and Judah is down in here. They are both connected. The Jews live in both of these places, but for a long time, they were separate kingdoms. Israel up in north, Judah down in the south. And what happened was, in like the 7th century BC, the Assyrians, who were up here, came down, and they conquered Israel. They conquered them. They, they laid waste to their cities, and they took people into exile, and all sorts of stuff. And you can read that in Scripture. And when they conquered them, the people there living in uh, Israel at the time began intermarrying with the Assyrians and with other, col- with other people that the Assyrians brought into the area. And their headquarters in the north, the northern kingdom's capital, was called Samaria. Samaria, Samaritans. Okay. As these people began to intermarry, they were in violation of several codes of conduct that God had given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And so the people down in the south, the the Jews left in Judah, realized that these people basically were breaking covenant with God by intermarrying with other, other peoples. And so they were not ethnically Jewish anymore. They were released from that ethnic marker. They were not allowed in the temple. They were not allowed to participate in Jewish festivals, right? Ethnically, they were of a different people. They were rejected from Jewish religious and cultural life because of this intermarriage. Okay. They were a different ethnicity. Did I hear that? Did I say that enough? Number two. They only followed the Torah. They didn't follow everything past the Torah. So that means Joshua to Malachi, in your Old Testament, Joshua to Malachi, they didn't, they didn't adhere to it. You get the first five books of the Bible, and that's it. Okay. And in those first five books, in the Samaritan Torah, there are several key differences in the text, specifically ones, for example, that talk about intermarriage, or uh, ones that talk about where the temple is supposed to be built, or ones that talk about uh, Mount Gerizim, which is an important Samaritan religious site. They're changes. In other words, they took the first five books of the Bible, these Samaritans, and they changed them. They, they modified them so that they would come out looking better, and the Jews would kind of come out looking a little worse. Right? In other words, they were not Jewish by religion, according to the Jews at least. They were not Jewish. They were something else. At best, they were some other religion. At worst, they were heretics. 
right? A heretic is somebody who pretends to be like you, but is really not, like a traitor. Number three. So, ethnically different, religiously different. Number three, finally, culturally, they were not just different from the Jews, they were enemies of the Jews. In fact, in the years leading up to Jesus' birth, if you read the history, in the years leading up to Jesus' birth, the Jews decided they'd had enough of these Samaritans, they went to Samaria and raised the Samaritan temple to the ground. They destroyed it, right? So they destroyed the religious center of the Samaritan people. And a few years later, to get back at them, the Samaritans actually halted, stopped from occurring the Passover service in Jerusalem, in Israel. Which, if you know anything about Judaism, the Passover service is the most important holiday within Judaism. And the Samaritans were able to, to cancel it. Like it's, somebody, like, it's the Grinch. Like, they canceled Christmas, right? And somebody somehow found a way to just, everywhere, to cancel it. That's what happened. They actually literally canceled Passover, and they did it by taking dead men's bones and spreading them in the temple and defiling the temple area. Right, so they literally stopped Israel from celebrating Passover one year because of... Uh, so these are not people who don't understand each other. Right? These are people who hate each other. They hate each other. And in fact, if you read in Scripture, it says, and Luke, that the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. They wouldn't do business with them. They wouldn't go to their towns. If you had to get from up above Judah down into Nazareth, you didn't go straight through straight through Samaria. You went a long route, all the way around. This is why when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John uh, 4, he has to walk, right? He, he, it says he goes through Samaria, and his disciples are like aghast. Why are you going through Samaria? Go around Samaria. Yeah, it takes you two extra days, but you don't go to Samaria. You don't go to their towns. You don't talk to the people. You don't celebrate. Good Lord, no, you don't celebrate with them. They are ethnically different. They are religiously different. And culturally, they are at war with the Jews. All right. Now, y'all, think about in your mind someone who is ethnically different and religiously different and at whom you are culturally at war with. Think in your mind of someone who is ethnically different and religiously different and someone with whom you are culturally at war with. Have you thought of that person? Did I tell you that it was going to be a difficult sermon? This is precisely the person that Jesus means to employ here. When he says Samaritan, the expert in the law to whom he is speaking, immediately understands the gravity of of what he is saying. A Samaritan is not a Jew. By the way, Jesus never said he was a Samaritan either. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a straight-shooting Jew. So he knows. He knows these Samaritans. They're not Jewish. They're not even ethnically Jewish. In fact, they're the enemies. Did I, did I poke at something yet? Did you, guys, did you have somebody in your mind? who is ethnically different than you, religiously different than you, and with whom you are at war with? Do you have somebody in your mind? That person shows up on the road. That person shows up on the road. He sees a beaten man. And immediately, it says, he's moved to pity. He goes to the man. He bandages his wounds. 
He pours oil. He pours wine. He puts him on his own animal. And then he proceeds to walk down this road, which is still a dangerous road, until he can get to an inn. And he checks this man into the inn. But that's not all. Put it the next verse here. It says, the next day. Say the next day. The next day. The next day. What does that mean? He stayed with him all night long. And if you know, if you've ever been in a traumatic accident, it's the first 24 hours that count the most. Are you going to take a turn for the, for the better or for the worse? He stays with that man all night, nursing him, tending to his wounds, making sure he's going to make it. And the next day, he pays for a three-week comfortable time at this inn with the money that he gives the man. And he says, I'm going to return in a while. And whatever else, whatever money you've spent on this man's care, charge it to me. Whereas the lawyer has asked Jesus what the bare minimum spirituality was, Jesus has given him a story which completely destroys the idea and introduces a radical new way of loving people, a radical new way of seeing people as a neighbor, the kind of love that the Samaritan shows to this Jewish man is one that is without any expectation of compensation. In fact, I can imagine this Samaritan would not have expected even for anything culturally to have changed with this man. He's not going to go to the first Jewish man that he sees and say, well, you know, I did help a guy. His one act of kindness and love isn't going to undo the wars between the Jews and the Samaritans. He has no intention of receiving compensation of any sort, yet he does it anyways. The priest, the Levite, they had a moral obligation to stop. That was their people. That was their person, and they didn't stop. The Samaritan has no moral obligation to stop. That's not his people. That's not his land. That's not his town. That's not his problem. But he makes it his problem. He makes him his people. He makes it his person. To live life through Christ means to operate out of a radical love for other people. I remember uh, when I was, um, when we were in Cambridge, we got there and, and uh, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know it's very difficult. And if you've ever moved internationally, oh my gosh. We had nine suitcases, and big ones, big duffel bags. We had like five big, huge duffel bags, and we had like four big, you know, roller suitcases. And then we had all of our other bags. Each of us had a backpack. James had a backpack, and I had my computer bag. Amy had her purse. All together, I think we had like, like 13 items with us. And uh, we, it was insane. I look back on it now. You do things, and you look back on it, and you're like, how did I even do that? I don't have no idea. But somehow, we managed to get all of our stuff to England. And we're at the airport. We're at Heathrow. And we have to get to Cambridge somehow. You know, we don't know anybody in England. Uh, so we, there's a, there's a uh, bus that goes from Heathrow to Cambridge. Uh, there are buses all over the place. So we go to the bus, 
And it was so funny. We had to get these two huge carts to carry all of our luggage. And we still had to carry stuff. And James was perched on top of one of the pieces of luggage. And we get out to this, to this bus. And the guy is, you know, the bus driver's there. And he's loading people in. And there's like somebody, like two people ahead of us who's going to get on the bus. And they had um, a backpack and two suitcases. And the driver like freaks out. He's like, I don't, we don't have space for that. What are you doing? This is, you got a backpack and two suitcases? That's, how are we supposed to put that on there? I don't know how you expect, what did you expect when you were coming to blah, 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 for like five minutes. And we're sitting there, you know, these, behind these mountains of <laughs> luggage. And uh, when it came our turn, I was just like, look, I said to him, I said, you're going to hate us. I just, I'm so sorry. Just want to say I'm so sorry because I just ruined your day. But we are here and we have all of this and we need to get to Cambridge somehow. And so he was, he was nice. I think because we were Americans, in, in general, we were treated pretty well. There's some people that don't like Americans in England, but in general, they like us for some reason. And uh, so, so the, he loaded up some of our luggage on the bus. But he said, we're not going to have enough room for everything. You're going to have to wait for the next bus. So we're going to put you your family, and some of your luggage on this bus. And all the rest of the luggage got to go on the next bus because the next bus will be, let, you know, more empty. And at the time, we had just stepped off of, like, a 14-hour flight, and it was, you know, so in my mind, it was like, yeah, whatever. Let's just, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. At that point, I would have done anything, you know, get this experience over with. So we did it. We, uh, we got some of our luggage onto the bus. We drove away. We arrived in Cambridge. We're just exhausted. We're at the bus drop-off space, and it's like a mile from where we're supposed to be living. So I left Amy and James sitting there on the bus stop with a couple pieces of luggage, and I got a cab and made up my way over to um, our place, our apartment. And I remember getting dropped off, and I felt like I know nobody here. It was after the time we were supposed to meet the guy who was supposed to listen to our apartment, so chances are he's gone home, and what on earth is (laughs) we going to do? And I show up, and I just had this, like, expression on my face, like deer in headlights. And a family uh, who is there, she, she, one of the, the wife, the mom, uh, she, like, saw me, and she was like, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I left my family to bus stop. Our luggage is God knows where. We, we're here now physically, but I have no idea what we're doing. And from that moment on, that family that first met us there, they made us their family. They took us in. They, you know, we, they would have us over for dinner. They were our, you know, they had a van, so they could, like, take us to a store to get bigger pieces of furniture or whatever we need to get for the house. They would help us out. They were the first family I knew that was a Muslim family. The first Muslim family I knew. And I remember sitting at a park once with, the, with her, her name was Rizal. I mean, sorry, her name is Rosa, and uh, her husband's name is Rizal. And I remember sitting with Rosa at a park and watching our kids play, and um, we're talking, and, and she turns to me, and she goes, she goes, wait a second, am I, am I the first Muslim that you know? And I was like, yeah. She goes, I'm going to have to be a lot better of a Muslim than <laughs> And I said, well, am I the first Christian that you know? And she goes, no. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to try to be a good Christian anyways. (laughs) They're a sweet, sweet family. Even to this day, if you ask James who his girlfriend is, he will say uh, Arena, even though he barely even remembers her, but that's their little girl. 
N- no, I never got to play with him. Never got to pray with him. We talked about religion occasionally. He wanted to, uh, Rizal, who was a good buddy of mine, he wanted to know if bacon tasted really good. I was like, I'm sorry, man, it really does. Like, it does. I, I, if I could lie to you and say no, I would, but I can't. It just, it does. He's like, oh, man. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, it's a life you've chosen. So um, w- when we came there, we didn't have any neighbors. They made us their neighbor. When this Samaritan was walking down the road and he sees a beaten man, he made him his neighbor. Do you understand? Do you understand? Verse 36, finally Jesus answers the lawyer question, asks the lawyer question. He says, uh, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man wanted to justify himself but I think he bit off more than he could chew. And Jesus comes back to him and he says, you know what? Don't worry about who your neighbor is. Who of these three people was a neighbor to the person that was found? Who of these three people took that responsibility? Didn't wait to discover if this person was a neighbor or not. We spent hours and hours asking ourselves, this person worthy of my attention? Am I supposed to be concerned about this community? Am I supposed to be worried about what's happening to this person? Because we're trying to figure out what relationship is this person to me? Instead, Jesus says, which of these three people was a neighbor to the man who, found it, who was beaten? Which of these three people made himself a neighbor? The Samaritan was a neighbor to the beaten man. And we see here in verse 37, the lawyer's response. The one who showed him mercy. Now isn't that interesting? Because it would be so much easier to say the Samaritan, wouldn't it? But that's not what he says. In fact, I would suspect the lawyer is still reeling from the fact that Jesus included a Samaritan to begin with. That the hero of this story was a Samaritan. The lawyer doesn't even want to acknowledge that. It's not the Samaritan, it's the one who showed him mercy. He can't even get, at this point, he can't even get beyond that empty feeling that he feels that perhaps maybe some of you felt when you thought about who this would be in your life. That sort of dropped out feeling in your gut that kind of says, wait, exactly, what exactly is Jesus trying to imply here? What exactly is Jesus trying to get across? Don't make me say Samaritan. Don't make me say it. And Jesus turns to Lori and he says, you're right. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, it's easy. It's easy to live the kind of spirituality that this lawyer wants to live. Where I can do the bare minimum and get away with it and be okay. It is hard to love people with the radical kind of love that Christ displays. The kind of love that transcends the normal boundaries of life that we put up around ourselves. This Samaritan man made this beaten man a neighbor. So I want to encourage you, as we uh, enter into communion, I want to, can I invite somebody to come and go downstairs and get the kids to come on up? We're going to do some communion. Communion is a time when we get to experience what it means for God to make us neighbors. And a lot of people, I think, sometimes are concerned because they say, well, um, and I'm sure this lawyer was thinking to himself, 
Samaritans are not Jews. So are you trying to say, Jesus, that that, that doesn't matter? Are you trying to say that it, it's, it's inconsequential, what they believe? Because that doesn't make any sense. And Jesus never said that. He never said, Samaritans, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. He never said anything like that. Okay. But what we see on display here is God opening up a heart of a people to people who they should normally not be opened up to. And that's what we see in communion. We see God opening his heart up to us, even though he perhaps should not. At communion, we get to experience together what it means to sit with God, to eat with him. Right? It says that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he sat in a room with his disciples, and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And after the supper, it says he took a cup of wine, and he said, this wine is the, my blood. It's a covenant. It's a new covenant with you. This experience, this table, gets to be a place where you get to meet a God with whom you should have nothing to do with. A God who is beyond us, and yet he has come here to this place now, even now, to meet with you. God has made you a neighbor. In God's mind, you are that neighbor. And he has stopped to tend to you and care for you. So we're going to invite the kids when they come to come up. And we're going to pray. And we're going to take some time to take communion. And when we do that, what we're going to do is you're just going to come up out of your seats. If you, by the way, some people want to know how, who's allowed to come and take communion. The rule of thumb that we have at this church is if you are hungry, you can take communion. In other words, if you need something spiritually, if you need something physically, if you need something emotionally, you're welcome to this table. There are no prerequisites for someone to come and be with Jesus here at this table. Okay? So if you need something, now if you're the kind of person that says, I have no needs, I don't need to be with God, I don't need God for anything, I would encourage you just to sit honestly, just to sit. Don't worry about it because um, you need to work out that first. (laughs) So when we come to the table, we come hungry. We come needy and God meets us here. So how much longer do I, should I stall? I'm going to invite also the prayer team uh, are going to come up and they are going to be over here at the wings to pray with people. So as you come up, what you can do is kind of grab communion. So come up into the middle, grab communion, go out to the wings. If you need prayer, stop for prayer. If not, make your way back to your seats. And when you take communion, when you drink the cup, when you eat the cracker, take it with somebody else near you. Uh, Take it sort of in communion with other people. So, yes, ready. Here we go. Here come the kids. Come on up, kids. Come on up, guys. I'm going to have you guys help me with communion. Is that okay? Thank you. Come on up. Come on over here. You can start over here. I go all around the, around the table. Gather around the table here. Good job, guys. You don't, there's no, by the way, there's no requisite. You can sit down. That's fine. That's cool. Come on, Becca. Come on over here. I'm here. Thank you. Can you guys help me pray? Yeah. We're going to pray for communion, and then you guys get to be the first ones to take a cracker and some juice and head back to your seats, okay? Okay, so I'm going to pray, and yeah, you can get some juice. I'm going to pray, and then you guys can say amen with me. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah, you're going to say amen. I'll, say, I'll tell you when to say it. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this meal. Thank you so much for this bread. Thank you so much for this juice. 
Thank you, Lord, that they're not just bread and juice, but that they represent something. They represent you, your body, your blood, your presence with us. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for working through us and for teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good job. Okay, go ahead and take a cracker, take some juice, head back to your seats. And I want to invite everybody else, if you'd like to come, if you'd like to come and participate, you may. There's no obligation to, of course. But feel free to come forward, grab a cracker, grab some juice, grab some prayer, and head back to your seats.